Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's weekly podcast devoted to mergers and acquisitions and this multi-trillion dollar industry we call deals. I am your host, the guest and substitute host, Jeffrey McCracken, managing editor of Bloomberg's Global Deals coverage. Again, I'm filling in for Alex Sherman, our ASEMNA reporter, who's usually manning the microphone as we chat with bankers, lawyers, flax, M&A heads, etc. But Alex is still out for another week or two after his wife delivered baby number two. Our guest in the second half of the podcast is Eileen Nugent, head of the M&A practice at Skadden Arps, one of Wall Street's largest and highest profile law firms. They are involved in a lot of the year's biggest deals. I would say they are a, a top three, top five law firm year in, year out. Right now, we're going to have another conversation with Mr. Ed Hammond, another one of our ace M&A reporters. Last week, we talked to Ed about his long distance bike riding. Ed, any long rides so far? Uh, yeah, couple obviously i was i was ill for a couple of days last week and i definitely wasn't riding my bike on those two days no i i rode yeah i rode a bit on thursday which was nice and i had a race on saturday which was horrendous because i was still fatigued from thursday so i did very badly in that and yeah with this early spring weather that we've had it's perfect it's hard to sort of not go out every day so i'm trying to get out in the mornings before work and stretch the legs very good. Very good. Other than talking about cycling, we're going to have a conversation with Ed about a deal and a potential second deal involving some of the world's biggest hotel chains. As many of you remember, a few months ago, I think it was around November, Marriott announced its acquisition of the Starwood hotel chain for around $72 a share in cash and stock. Starwood owns hotel chains like the W and the Westin and the St. Regis. And that deal, which valued Starwood at about $12 billion, was going along and headed for a close. Then on March 10th, a Chinese-based insurance company called OnBank lobbed in an all-cash offer of $76 a share, which valued Starwood at close to $12.9 billion. Now Starwood and Marriott have confirmed they've received the offer, and both firms have to decide what to do. Ed, you've written about this a few times now. What is OnBank up to, and did anyone see this coming? I suppose we should have seen it coming. Uh, the answer is no, I don't think anyone did see this coming. It surprised the market. It certainly surprised um, the M&A reporting contingent on Wall Street. What are Angbang doing? I, I suppose that expanding is probably the best possible answer for it. They, you know, they are clearly aggressively pursuing every hotel deal that they can at the moment. They, um, this would be the second significant transaction for them in a very short space of time if indeed they get it away. And, and it look, was just you know, last year that they made a bid for the Waldorf, Waldorf Astorio that, for about $1.9 billion, as that, I recall. That, that's correct. A successful bid. And they um, they obviously also have done the strategic hotels deal on Friday. And then on Monday, they announced that they're trying to bust up the Marriott Starwood situation. So I think it's interesting. You know, it's, it's fun. It creates more headlines for us. It's a new sort of force in the market, clearly cash rich, clearly keen to expand its portfolio of hotels. And actually fits into a much wider trend that we're seeing, which you and I have talked about frequently, which is this sort of influx of Chinese capital into the US and into Europe and looking for, for M&A situations. You mentioned strategic hotels. So Blackstone, the, the famous well-known private equity fund, not many months ago bought strategic hotels, I think mm -hmm. for around $6 billion. And then this Saturday, it was announced that OnBang was buying it from Blackstone, literally just three months after Blackstone bought it, buying it from them for about $6.5 Is that right? Yeah, it's like... 
the best flip of the century. I uh, I'd love to be able to do real estate deals like that. Imagine that you're making you know four and a half or five hundred million dollars for doing very little for just three months and. Um, it's great. I mean, for Blackstone, it's a killer deal. And what's interesting is they must have, they must have known almost as soon as they bought the thing that they would be able to find a willing buyer in Angbang, and um, they did. And even by Blackstone's real estate standards, and you know, they are probably the best in the business at buying undervalued assets, turning them around fairly quickly, and selling them either to you know another buyer or putting them in the public market. And just doing it in that time frame is, is almost unheard of. So if Anbang is successful here with the Starwood situation, I think they become maybe the world's largest hotel chain. You know, a company that no one knew about, very very few people knew about a month ago, suddenly becomes the largest hotel chain in the world. That's that's incredible. I think that's right. If you, I think certainly if you are doing it on a, as it were, by room basis, they would be the largest in the world. And, and doubly interesting because they're not actually even a hotel company or even a real estate company. They're an insurance company. And it sort of speaks to this thing that we've seen now, I suppose, for the last decade, um, and it actually was, was a theme again in the 80s, of the big insurance companies and the big pension funds. Instead of owning real estate passively through REITs or through other third-party operators, they just like to own it themselves because it, it has the return profile that they like. It's something that is very... You know, it has demonstrable long-term revenue stream, and they've been buying it up in 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 huge lots over the past few years, and this is just the kind of logical extension of that trend. Right. Warren Buffett has used the insurance model, if you will. They've got a lot of capital, and they're putting it to use. And as you said, they're being re- reasonably aggressive, especially here now with this uh, with Onbang. Now they're partnered with uh, a couple others, I believe. There's a private equity fund that they're partnering with, and then Chris Flowers, uh, former yeah. Goldman Sachs guy, that people know quite well is that right yeah so it's jc flowers and i want to get this right i think it's called primeva primeva capital right so yeah and look this is again sort of classic model that we tend to see when chinese companies are buying strategic assets in the us or in europe it, it part of it is the optics of it. it it's seen as being less uh less i suppose of a kind of a front on the sovereign ownership of these assets if the Chinese companies coming in are partnering with um, you know with local companies or with kind of established private equity funds to operate already in the US you know I think it makes sense that these guys would want to be part of this deal I think it's um, the offer is a very full price for sure this is a company that clearly has ambitions to expand and do lots of other deals and if they can get in a ticket now then who knows they probably can tie up some more deals with them in future what do you think Marriott's going to do? Do you expect they'll come back and try to top the bid from Onbang, or will they just take the? I think they're due roughly four hundred million dollars uh, in, in termination fee. in a break fee. Mm. I, I'm curious if they if they will come back, or or will they just take their money and go away? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't know enough about their capacity and their firepower to actually come back and try and top the Chinese bid. I think they would struggle to. I think it's a big bump over what the existing Marriott offer is. But that said, you know, this is already a very consolidated marketplace. And, you know, with Angbang going to become the biggest hotel operator by rooms, I think Marriott is going to have to think very carefully about whether or not it wants to become a sort of subscale 
player in a in a fast consolidating marketplace. And it, it's got to be an interesting, perhaps frightening time for the big hotel chains with Airbnb and how they've really, you know, uh, among these privately held unicorns, we often call them, they seem to be one that is quite real and and could threaten the the larger hotel chains. And and but at the same time, we're seeing all this M and A. It's just kind of a, as I said, an interesting time right now for that space. Yeah, except that it is, and, and you know, consolidation is often driven by sort of disruption and by fear that um, the industry or the business model that you have long had is changing. And one way to try and offset that and offset the lack of growth you therefore have is is through through M&A. I think, it, yeah, Airbnb is really interesting. I mean, I wish Sherman was here because when you mentioned things like unicorn or I say disruption, I feel like we're both kind of talking slightly out of our, our area of expertise. But um, I did an Airbnb for the first time about a month ago, and it kind of revolutionized like my holiday. And I don't, I'm not sure I'll ever want to do a hotel again. It was just so much easier. You know, I did it all through my phone. I didn't have to deal with anyone on the reception or any awkward stuff about, you know, whether I'd done my mini bar when I'd had too much to drink. It was <laughs> it was great. It was so easy. I've never done an Airbnb, but you're you're, you're start, starting Strongly to Strongly recommend it. it. So you, uh, you'd hinted at earlier, you know, obviously this is another Chinese outbound acquisition. Mm. The biggest deal of the year, the biggest announced deal so far this year was in fact a Chinese outbound deal where a company called ChemChina bought a, an agrichem company called Syngenta out of Europe. But that's not the only one. We've seen over and over, we've seen Chinese outbound deals in the tech space and elsewhere. Yep. And uh, we see what's interesting is, I guess, for every deal we see announced or done, we hear about probably four or five others that don't necessarily make it that far along, but where there is Chinese interest either in an auction process or on a kind of bilateral basis where they've approached the company and not got it through. You know, it's fascinating. I think that there was always a sense during this last M&A cycle or this current M&A cycle, even that Chinese bid was sort of there but wasn't really real because you know they might express interest but they couldn't necessarily get the financing or the government approval to actually go through with the deal and I think the last probably four or five months that has really started to change and we're seeing these deals actually being executed ChemChina obviously being the kind of biggest example of that and they topped Monsanto who had I think had made three or possibly even four attempts to buy Syngenta over a period of years and um, ChemChina came in very late in the game and offered a, a knockout bid that no one else could compete with and um, yeah it's, well obviously it yet to close but they successfully got Syngenta to agree to sell themselves. Right and we had the GE appliance sale was another one where an Asian buyer came along and topped everybody else and substantially topped everybody else. Um, <laughs> Yep, that's absolutely right. And I think what's what's interesting with all of these Chinese deals, you know, whether they're in real estate or whether they're in tech or appliances or, or agrichem, is we're seeing this shift in the regulatory landscape where, you know, previously the CFIUS review was seen as so tough and so rigid that a lot of these Chinese buyers, I think, even when it made strategic sense for them to do a deal, would not do it just because the regulatory risk was too hard. And they're pushing now. I think they're thinking we can get these things through. You know, there was some deals. I think uh, was it the Smithfield deal last two years ago, even where they declared, where Sifius declared that sausages were an area of nas- national interest, and sort of uh, you know dragged their feet over the deal, but eventually did let it through. And I think there is now a, a much greater expectation on the part of not just Chinese but foreign buyers generally that you know 
they can, with the right arguments and particularly the right people on the ground here, they can get these complicated cross-border deals through the regulators. Yeah, I get the sense this won't be the last Chinese deal into the U.S. that we're discussing here on the podcast and, and writing about in the future. No, certainly from the uh, the number of times I call investment bankers or lawyers and find them in Beijing or, or some part of China and you know not welcoming the call because it's two in the morning for them, I, I think on that basis alone, we would expect to see a lot more Chinese inbound activity. Thanks, Ed. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. Welcome back to Deal of the Week, our weekly podcast on the never dull world of mergers and acquisitions. Our guest today is one of the deans of the M&A world, Eileen Nugent, who is co-head of Global M&A at Skadden Arps. They're one of the world's dominant law firms in everything corporations are up to, whether that is fundraising or tax issues or regulations, or in the case of Eileen, M&A, Skadden is at the front lines for many of the world's largest companies. Eileen, thanks for swinging by the studio. Thanks for asking me to be here, Jeff. So you went to law school here in New York, and your first first job out of school was with Allied Signal. And and is that what got you into the M&A world? Because they were a bit of a deal machine, as I recall, 30 or so years ago. Absolutely. But as a matter of fact, when I first went to Allied, I thought I wanted to be, you know, a commercial lawyer and work in almost like a mini general counsel for business unit. And that's how I started. And right after I got there, the company got a new CEO, Ed Hennessy, who was, was very much out of the Janine machine and was a deal guy. And it was the early 80s. Lots of deals started to happen. And it was, I got the bug. And then you went to Skadden roughly 30 years ago, right? You started in Skadden <laughs> in 1986, I, oh, I believe Oh, God, it said. sounds so long when you say 30 years. Yes, you know, but that's it. And it was an uh, 86 right in the middle of the boom. And also it's getting just a fabulous time. It's a fabulous firm. I obviously love the place, but it also really was expanding at that time because the whole world of M&A was expanding. You you had a feeling like you were in on the the beginning of a of a real, you know, sort of revolution in how companies grew. Did you always want to be I mean you mentioned you were thinking of maybe staying in-house at a firm and and kind of rising up through the ranks, but Pretty quickly, I assume, you got you got the bug with M&A and, and thought, this is going to be my career, this is going to be my future? Absolutely. I've considered myself lucky in that spot. And, you know, sometimes it's serendipity. It just worked. I discovered the area, just loved it, and it took off. And obviously, it's been the right choice. I st- still love it. That's oh, even after all these years, Jeff. You know, from the outside, it looks like an exciting world, and we often call it glamorous and high-profile and exciting. Is it more mundane than we would understand uh, on the inside? Is it more mundane, more boring sometimes than than we would expect? Well, it's certainly less glamorous. (laughs) I don't think it's ever really boring. I mean, I think it is a very unique feel because it's, it's an intersection of a lot of finance and a lot of law. It's also an an intersection of a lot of of different practices, areas of the law. And so it's very fulfilling. It's always a new challenge. But trust me, that's 
the geek in me talking. You know, that's uh, I'm sure a lot of people would find the day to day work pretty boring. But there's nothing like announcing a deal and seeing it on Bloomberg, hearing it on Bloomberg. <laughs> that's how our, that's how we feel as well. I, I was looking back at the, at the list of deals you've done, and they were just, you know, I was looking at your, your page there at Skadden, and it goes on and on and on. A lot of incredibly large, incredibly uh, transformational deals. One that struck me was 3G. Uh, so a few years ago, 3G bought Burger King, and you worked on that deal. And then later, Burger King, they, they took it public. But that was before people, I think, knew 3G as much as they know them now, uh, you know, after the Heinz deal and the Kraft deal and all the things they've done with Anheuser-Busch, et cetera. Can you take us through that deal a little bit? I mean, how, how did that all come together, the 3G Burger King deal? Well, it was a fascinating deal, frankly, because they were a little unknown. I uh, represented Burger King, but it was was very interesting. The um, They're very talented guys at 3G, and they came to... The situation with a lot of ideas for for Burger King, a lot of its expansion globally, particularly into Latin and you know South America, and uh, they were really it was their start, but they're fabulous guys, and was was very interesting to see them and how they learned about the business and just put together a great deal. As a legal matter, it was a very interesting deal because it was one of the very first to try to make a bid happen, you know, very fast with fin- financing through a tender offer and a couple of, of different techniques. So it was very interesting. When you look back on, on the various deals you've worked on, are there, is there one or are there a couple that stand out as, is either because, because of the size of them or because of the difficulty or the challenges in getting them done, or maybe because of the personalities that were involved? Um, any deals that, that, that stand out that you can think of? Sure. Well, one f- Fascinating deal. Uh, in 99, Skadden represented Warner Lambert doing a merger of equals with American Home Products, which was jumped by Pfizer. And at the time, that was that was a $90 billion deal, I think, which wow. in 1999 was some deal, right? It, it's still kind of big today. <laughs> uh, yes, they just keep getting bigger. But that was an interesting thing because you had – it was a full education in corporate law. You really had – a friendly deal, a merger of equals, and then, you know, a jump deal, which always has a little bit of an aspect of almost a hostile deal, and uh, really learned a lot. It was a great experience. Any others besides uh, the Warner-Lambert-Pfizer deal? Well, I think one of the things that's close to my heart, I've represented endo pharmaceuticals for a very long time, since 1997, through many changes back when they were a private company, you know, having been bought by a private equity firm, and then emerging by doing a merger with a public company. And I still represent them. Uh, They do a lot of deals, and they've recently re-domesticated to Ireland. So I've had that learning experience as part of that. It's great, actually, to work a long time with a client and see their goals evolve. They've grown a lot, haven't they? Oh, tremendous amount. They were a very small company back in 1997. When you got started, did you often look around the room when you were working on a big deal, whether this was the 80s or 90s or just a few years ago even, look around the room and say, boy, I'm about the only woman here? That happened a lot. (laughs) It still happens occasionally, but nowhere near as much. I don't know. I, I Certainly at the firm, and I think with most of my colleagues and peers at other firms, 
you know, if you work hard and you're smart enough and you can do the work, I I don't feel that it was a particularly tough spot for a woman, but in the, the early days it was certainly lonely. I can almost tell you the moment when a lot of my clients' daughters started to go to business school and medical school and law school because there was a sea change. It was a little bit, well, you know, my daughter can do this, so, you know, this woman must be able of capable of doing this too. So it was lonely, I will say that. Is there still a glass ceiling? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it's been um it's tough maybe. I think that women it's it's very true that we are great jugglers and have a lot in our personal lives, certainly with children, that is just time consuming, but that's true of men now too. Hopefully the world is evolving. One of the reasons we have you on this week is because you're vice chair for the Tulane M&A conference. I've been going since 2009. It basically exists. Uh, it's one of the only M&A conferences I'm aware of. It exists for lawyers, right, to get continuing legal education. And they all meet down in New Orleans New Orleans, uh, sometime later, or well, later this week, to discuss M&A and, and to figure out what's going on. Um, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about Tulane and how that conference uh, came together? Well, it really came together quite a while ago. We've been doing this for more than 25 years. I think this is the 27th year. And uh, it originally started with Joe Flom and Marty Lipton of uh, Wachtell Lipton, and obviously Joe Flom of Skadenarp, Slate, Marn Flom. Two of the legal M&A legends. They're right. And uh, really, at both legends, literally, at the beginning of the M&A world, and Together with Drew Moore, who was then on, I believe, the Supreme Court in Delaware, he's a Tulane alum, wanted to do something nice for Tulane, and they started a conference that started small to bring the M&A bar, which is very much a New York and a Delaware bar because of the importance of Delaware law to M&A deals. And it started slowly but surely, but I'm expecting the end of this week to have more than uh, 500 people attending the conference. How many years have you been going to the Tulane Conference? Oh, Lord, uh, about 20. Okay. About 20. And have you worked on, I assume you, you still work when you're down there, you're still working on deals and having client conversations? You find an awful lot of uh, the participants in the conference in the hallway on their phones, yes. <laughs> I would say that's uh, true of bankers and lawyers, and you know, it's a, it's a 24-7 kind of business. My last question, how has M&A changed? I mean, obviously, you've been doing this for quite some time. You've been on a lot of deals. Is it the internet? Is it the email so you don't have to be face-to-face and it's not over the phone? It's all, you know, via computer. I'm just curious, what in your mind is the biggest change you've seen or you've experienced in the in the, in the three decades you've been doing this at Skadden? Well, that's interesting. I, I, I think the biggest change is familiarity. Uh, that at the beginning, at the very beginning, people were, it's hard to imagine this now, they didn't really understand what, what mergers were. The whole idea of one company taking over another, even in a friendly context, was, I think, threatening to people. But it's become so much a part of the financial marketplace that people are used to it. And that has really changed. So any element of distress or, you know, the idea of a deal not happening is 
less and less prevalent, you know, that that people are very accepting of a deal. I think in terms of the day-to-day life of a lawyer, like the day-to-day life of every single business person I can think of, everything has sped up. And that that really is a result of internet and email and the ready exchange of documents and things are more fast paced. And frankly, I sometimes think we should all take a breath and make sure we're thinking things through. I would not disagree with that. Do the deals themselves get done faster than they did 30 years ago? Or does it still take however many weeks or months to, to get from A to Z? I think deals are very varied. And a deal that people want to get done fast, I think they get done quickly, probably no more quickly than they, they might have been done 10 years ago or so. But people, I think, in the last few years, frankly, have slowed down a little bit in terms of thinking and in terms of diligence and things like that and making sure that the strategy works. Got it. Thank you, Eileen. Thank you, I think that's you, all Jeff. the time we've got. So that's it for this episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed it. You can expect more Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals who are doing deals real-time on our podcast. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and on Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. And take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. You can find us on Twitter at EdHammondNY or J.C. McCracken. Thanks again. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work.